consider praying for these guys as we're going in a few weeks. Next week will be, I guess, our last Sunday before we leave, because we're going to leave on that Saturday. And so next week, we're going to do a commissioning for this team and head out on Mission Mexico. Uh, they've been meeting every Tuesday at our place, practicing our Spanish, and uh, getting prepared for some of the work that we have. You guys can sit down, by the way, I, like if you want. I should have just left you standing because we're going to worship now anyway. Um, but these guys have been practicing their Spanish and doing very well. It's been great. These guys are on like unit six of their Duolingo. They're just flying through it. You're going to be our translators. Um, but we're really excited for that. And so if you would consider giving um, to help support these guys to go on this trip, that would be fantastic. That's all the announcements I have for you. As oh, and Kaylee's going on the trip. Welcome, Kaylee. Good morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can give to support Kaylee as well. <laughs> Shame you for showing up late. That's <laughs> if you need any more information, go to commongroundchurchcma.org to the events and updates tab. We have a lot of information there. We also have a big church calendar on there that will show you everything that's happening, everything taking place. So I would encourage you look at that, check it out, link it to your phone so you know what's happening. And with that, let's go into worship. I think we can go into worship. So would you please stand? Um, and I'm going to go ahead and pray as we begin worship this morning. Well, Father God, uh, we come before you um, to worship and to praise you. Um, we just thank you for this family of common ground um, that we get to be a part of, that you have surrounded us with. Um, it is with one voice that now we are uniting in, in praise to you. Um, we just recognize your goodness. We recognize your grace and mercy that you have poured out on us. And we want to sing back to you, sing back to you in a posture of praise. So God, um, as we move into this time, would you just focus our hearts and minds on you? Uh, focus our hearts and minds on the words that we sing, um, on the lives that we live in order to be an offering to you. And we, we just thank you for being present in this room. And we just hope that this is a sweet sound in your ear. So Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
us, Lord. You are holy. You are bigger than we are. You are stronger than we are. And you deserve all of the praise in the world that we could possibly give to you for that. Thank you for being much more grand than my expectations and for giving me more than I ever deserve. Um, thank you for showing us just how much you've provided for us in our daily lives and the small things and in the big things. Um, and I pray that you open um, our eyes and our ears to see and to hear um, who you are and what you have done in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't sit down quite yet. We're going to shake some hands and kiss some babies. Don't kiss any babies. Sorry, I'll protect the babies. Um, <laughs> You guys want to find a friend, someone maybe you haven't seen? We don't have that many people here today. Um, so find, find someone you haven't seen before, someone you haven't met before. Learn a new name. Um, yeah, go, go for it.
us all in spite of, but you also love us all because of. You love each of your children fully, um, all of their flaws, all of their beauty, um, all of the quirks, all of the weirdness, uh, different cultures, different ages, different people groups. They are all created by you all are made to worship you. They all are designed to love you. Um, I just pray that we can show that to our friends and our family and the people that we don't know and the people that we do know. I just pray you give us opportunity and open doors with this Mexico trip coming up and even back here in Rapid City 
to show your love and who you've made us to be to these people. Um, beyond understanding of language, past cultural barriers, you speak to every person in their own way. And I just pray that you speak through us to them um, to show your love and your mercy. Thank you, Lord. Just like amen. Guys, to have a seat. We are going to be going into a time of offering. Um, there should be a slide up there if you would like to give online. There's a website and a phone number if you would like to give in person. We have a box back yonder. Um, we today are going to be singing a song that is about 50% in Spanish, so don't get scared. Um, there's something to be said about singing music and praising the Lord um, in a language that isn't your own. Because if the expectation is that when we get to heaven, everyone's singing in English, you probably are wrong. <laughs> God is a, a God of all cultures and all people groups and of the masses. Um, and I got told one time some something really good and something that I hadn't thought about before, but don't don't feel like you have to sing in Spanish. Don't feel like you have to sing in English. Sing in whatever your heart leads you to. Um, we have people that come here that speak Russian, Ukrainian. <laughs> like, I'm sure at least one of you somewhere has to speak Spanish a little bit. Whatever language your God is speaking to you through is what you should be singing in, and that is okay. So if the Spanish stuff comes up and you're uncomfortable, sing in English. That's fine. If you don't understand what the Spanish says and you just want to, like, listen to it, just listen to it. That's okay. Um, but as we're going to be preparing for this trip to go to Mexico and um, upcoming trips potentially to France or anywhere in the world, um, language is huge. Communicating with people on a level that is their own. So this is my way of learning and forcing myself to learn songs in Spanish. Um, and you guys just get to watch that. So... We'll go ahead and start. It's an easy song. Everyone knows it. So it'll be, you'll, if you don't know the Spanish, you'll probably know the English. It's good. with fire the whole 
Lord, we lift your name up. We praise you for all that you've given to us and all that you continue to be for us. And I just pray that you would be there as you always have been. Comfort us in the pain. joyful for us when we are joyful in you. Thank you for all that you will continue to be. The strength that we have, the, the joy that we can't contain, the, the never-ending praise that leaves our lips. Good morning, everyone. My name is Nick, and uh, this is our time uh, right on the heels of worship, of staying in worship, but yet moving into uh, a different way of approaching God, and that's through prayer. Um, I would like to believe that Common Ground is a place where people are willing to pray for one another. I really do believe that. Um, I also would like to believe that Common Ground is a place where people are willing to ask for help, uh, that they feel comfortable going to one another here and uh, saying, here is my burden. The Bible tells us that uh, each should carry his own load in Galatians, but it also says in Galatians chapter 6 to be ready to bear one another's burdens. There's some things that we're just, you know, some things we can carry. We're meant to do that. There are responsibility, but there are some things that are beyond us, and God does that. He gives us stuff that's too much for us alone. Uh, he does that on purpose, not to beat us down, but to make us dependent on him and on one another, because our job, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord our God with all of our being and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And prayer is a, a time in which we can do that, or prayer is a manner in which we could do that. Uh, so I'm going to read a passage of scripture out of Isaiah 35, where it says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the justice of God. He will come and save you. And, and that's our opportunity to do that for one another. Uh, it's not just, you know, your pastor's job to come up here and say, all right, people, be mighty in your faith. <laughs> but it's really the job of the family of Christ to gather around one another and to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to embolden one another, to remind one another that we have a mighty God, a God who comes to save. So in the past few weeks, um, Evan has shared some prayer requests, and then he's given sections, jobs, <laughs> <laughs> things to pray for. That was really good. But today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, if you have a prayer request and you really want uh, the church to be praying for it, I would ask you to come seek out Evan, myself, or Joey, or Winter, or anybody else who's on the prayer team that I'm not seeing right now. 
Pardon me? Mark? Okay, yeah, he's giving me names. Okay, I, I should probably just have the prayer team stand up so that you can all find them. But, but Mark and Tim and Mandy, they're on that as well. Um, we encourage you, come and find us and let us know, and we will pray for you, but we'll also get the word out to others to uh, get an army of prayer and support for you if that's what you would like. But today I'm just going to ask you to do this. If uh, it, it says where two or three are gathered, uh, today I'm going to break it down into smaller groups and just say, Hey, a couple of you, or maybe three of you, if you want to just gather up, um, do this. Uh, share the burden that you're carrying. Are you weary? I am. Okay. Is there something making you weary? Uh, call it out and pray for one another. And I'd say in that little trio, not everybody has to pray. Okay. Uh, maybe your job today is just to come and say, hey, here's how I'd like people to pray for me. But uh, someone in that group, if you would, just, just pray for uh, those that you have with you. And as many who want to may pray and uh, as many who would just rather just have prayer given to them uh, for them, uh, you can just do that as well. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So go ahead and uh, uh, team up, trio up. <laughs> Take a moment to pray with one another, and then I will close us off at a certain point.
Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, continue to bring our petitions and our intercessions, our prayers for one another before you, we are so grateful, God, that you are capable of hearing all these voices at once without any overlap, without any confusion. Lord God, we thank you that you invite us to come confidently in the name of Christ to your throne of grace that we might find help in time of needs. Lord, may we be a people that together seek that help, seek that grace as often as we can. Lord, we thank you for your son, our high priest, who is constantly at your side praying on our behalf. Lord, may we follow in his footsteps and serve like priests to one another, um, bringing these requests, these concerns, uh, whatever anxieties or worries might burden our hearts, uh, to your throne. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that enables us to speak to you in a language uh, that is appropriate for your holiness and your righteousness. And God, may we be a people who constantly rely upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, um, to pray for one another, pray with one another, knowing that you hear our prayers through, uh, through his translation, uh, Father. And God, um, may we not just be a people who gather for a few minutes on a Sunday to pray with one another, but may we be a people that are constantly in prayer uh, for our brothers, for our sisters. Um, Lord, may we be sensitive to the promptings of your spirit in our heart that uh, you bring a name or a face to us that we would stop right where we're at and, and that we would pray for one another. God, thank you for the gift of your body. Thank you that you gave us each other, that we could love you together and that we could love one another. And thank you, Lord, that you give us the means to do that uh, through encouragement, uh, through just maybe sharing a good word with one another, maybe coming alongside, putting a hand on the shoulder and just reminding people they're not alone. Um, and also, Lord, to do so in this simple act of bowing together and praying with one another. So, God, thank you. Thank you for this time that you give us. And thank you for calling us to be a people of prayer. And we now lift up our pastor to you, God, as he brings the book of Hebrews before us, that, Lord, your spirit would speak through his lips, and that, God, you would speak to us through this servant, and that, God, you would anoint him and bless him mightily as he serves you in this manner. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, everyone, for entering into that time of prayer. Let me just put my chair back here. Um, and as Nick said, um, we are continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We are still in chapter 5 today, but we are going to be wrapping up chapter 5 and actually going all the way through chapter 6. So we're going to cover some ground today, um, but that's okay because we'll take it one step at a time. We'll pace ourselves. That'll be good. Um, but as we talked about um, last week, the, the preacher to the Hebrews, he introduced this idea of Jesus as a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And he really wants to talk about that, and he really wants to get into it. And then here, at the end of chapter 5, and basically all of chapter 6, there's a bit of a pause in that discussion. It's like he really wants to get into this discussion as Jesus, the high priest, but he notices that the people don't quite get it. Um, and it's kind of helpful to remind ourselves that the book of Hebrews is not written as much like a book as it was given as a message, as a sermon. And sometimes when a pastor is preaching, 
um, and he's looking out in the crowd, he'll see from the facial expressions or maybe the body language of people that maybe they're not getting it. Uh, maybe they have a very confused look on their face, or maybe they look very angry, maybe they're shaking their head a lot, or maybe they are just straight up asleep. Um, I know that would never happen here, right? Right? No, not here, not with the preacher that you have. But I did preach one time in this large retirement home where there was about 150 people. And when I got up to preach, I think about 50% of them were already asleep. Um, and so in that case, I was too afraid to say anything or mention anything because I didn't want to offend a bunch of 80-year-olds. But here, this preacher is not afraid to basically notice that people are not getting it, notice people are not paying attention, and then grab them by the shoulders and wake them up. And that's what he does here, basically the end of chapter 5 um, through chapter 6, is he wants to get into this discussion as Jesus the high priest and the order of Melchizedek. But before he gets there, um, he needs to grab their attention a little bit. He needs to shake them awake. He needs, to get, he needs them to take this as seriously as it is. And so he is going to cause some discomfort here. He's going to cause some existential shock to their system. And he gives them a very stern warning that they need to pay attention here. And he warns them that their lack of listening is hurting them, and it is going to continue to hurt them. And so what he's addressing here is this idea of not listening, making you an immature Christian, and he's really posing this big question and answering this question of what is a mature Christian? What is a mature Christian? What is an immature Christian? And that's what he's going to kind of get into, and he'll eventually land on the reality that a mature Christian is one who is focused on Jesus and who hangs on to Jesus. And so... If you're there, we'll start in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. And like I said, we're going to finish up chapter 6, but we're going to pace ourselves. So we'll just take it one little section at a time. Um, so Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Let's start this and see what we find here. So he begins this right here. He says, we have much to say about this. And again, he's talking about Jesus as the high priest, like last chapter. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings of, about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So we'll pause there, um, because talk about like coming out guns blazing, just starting out with a real shake to the senses. He starts out saying, uh, you're all being babies. You're not mature. Um, and it's pretty harsh, and I really can't think of a better invitation um, for the audience to take offense to this. Are you okay, Lauren? We're okay. <laughs> all right, we're going to tell Stephen and Bridget, put some tape on those things. Um, but So I really can't think of a better invitation to take offense at this. But basically, what would happen if the listener were to take offense and to be offended by this charge is they would kind of lay their cards out on the table and prove his point, right? Because it would be the spiritually immature who would take offense at this, and it would be the mature that would recognize the challenge that, oh, it's right, I should be growing and I should be maturing in my faith, that it is not okay just to be a baby forever. And see, the preacher here, he's concerned about them not trying to understand, not listening, about going deaf, about this just falling on deaf ears. And he's warning them that if they're turning up their own inner voice or the voice of culture that 
they could allow it to drown out the voice of God and to not listen to this, that they could just simply stop trying to understand. And he says that basically your growth has stunted because you've stopped listening. You've stopped trying to understand that this has been kind of hard and you just decided, and it's too hard, I'm going to tune it out. And he's warning them that this is a problem. And then the analogy he uses is pretty strong, right? That they should be moving on from drinking milk at this point. And now, I'm not a mother and I don't want to get into the discussion of like how old is appropriate and whatnot, but I think we can all agree that, okay, at like 10 years old, nursing should probably stop, right? It's probably a little old at that point. Like, there does come a time when, like, in, if instead of having my water bottle, if I was drinking from, like, if I was drinking milk from a baby's bottle, it would look a little weird. And if I tried to argue otherwise, like, no, it's really practical, it doesn't spill, it's great, you would still say, like, it's just, you need to move on, you need to get something different. And that's kind of the analogy that he's bringing up here. It's this intense thing. He's reminding them, don't stay on this milk forever. And he's reminding them that you're either moving towards Christ or your growth could be stunted. And growth stunted or a passive faith is not a good thing, that it can cause these problems. Aside from just looking a little off, it can cause problems. And he's reminding them that time essentially doesn't guarantee maturity. Just because you've been a Christian for this long doesn't guarantee you're growing towards Christ. That there actually needs to be this listening, there actually needs to be this holding on to faith that we're going to get into. And then he gets into it in chapter 6. So we begin there. He says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Okay, so he's saying... Um, you guys, you've been saved by faith, and you should know these foundational truths. Um, and he gives this little list of elementary doctrines, as he would call them. And he would say that these are essentially things that all of you should know by now, and I shouldn't have to continually remind you about this. And we should be able to talk about Melchizedek, but you're not ready to hear it because I keep having to reteach these things. And he says that by now, to the original audience, you should be moved on from these things, or you should have this foundation set so that we can go deeper. The deal is, okay, he's talking to that original audience that they should be moved past. The reality for some of us is that some of us might be new to our faith. We might still be asking these questions. We might still need this milk. And for some of us, if we're in that situation, then that is appropriate and that is where we should be. If we're new to our faith, then we need to be asking these questions and learning these things. But what the author is telling us is that there does come a point in every believer's life when this foundation should be set, we should have the ABCs down, we should have the, the milk down so that we can move on to these other things. And then he kind of gives this list um, that I outlined here. There are six different things. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list nonetheless of what he would consider being these milk topics. Um, so looking at this, who feels like they've got every, everything down? Everybody good? Everybody understand 100% about it? You've got the... Uh, the instruction on laying on of hands down? Understand that fully? Okay. I bet you guys are not as confused about this as you think you are, just from the surface. Um, so we'll just kind of look at them first off. The first one being repentance from acts that leads to death. Or some of your versions might say repentance from dead works. A lot of them will have. 
Now, um, repentance, kind of Christianity 101, right? Recognizing sin is sin and turning to God instead. It's pretty basic. We understand that. Um, and then these acts that lead to death or dead works, this is what he's been addressing basically the entire book up until this point, is are the things that the Hebrews were turning to to earn their salvation, right? The, the sacrifices in the temple or the mediation from the priests, they're still turning to these old works in order to be saved, in order to be close to God. They're still turning to that old system, and he's telling them, hey, I've reminded of you this, I've reminded you of this five times, I don't need to anymore. So even if this looks kind of confusing, I'm sure most of us in this room would be in agreement that we don't have to travel to the temple and make a sacrifice in order to be good with God, right? Okay, it's basic, we kind of get that, but these people were struggling with it. Then there's faith in God, right? Believe in God and believe God, that this is how you're saved, right? Christianity 101, salvation by faith, faith alone, not by these works, but believing in God. And this is something that these people were actually struggling with, right? They were still having trouble understanding that it's actually just faith. That's it. That's all we need. And this is going to be pretty important for us as we move forward into some of the trickier parts of this chapter, is remembering this main message he's teaching of how important faith in God is. You are saved by your faith in God. And then he gets into the instruction about cleansing rites. Now this one, this one looks a little confusing, and we might think, oh no, I'm a baby, I drink milk, I don't know all the instructions on cleansing rites. But I bet you're not as confused about this as you think, um, because if you think about it, um, what is a Christian um, cleansing rite that involves water or has some kind of washing, bathing imagery? Baptism? Okay, great. We know what baptism is. That's a very Christian thing, biblical thing. We're familiar with baptism. So if you were to be having a conversation with someone you just meet for the first time, find out that one another is a Christian, and this person tells you, like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was baptized at this point. You'd say, great, that's kind of enough for me to hear. Um, you probably wouldn't question their faith at that point. I don't think you should. You'd be like, awesome, you're baptized. I believe you. You must be a Jesus follower. But then if you were to say, okay, I, I was also baptized. Like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, all these things, and I was baptized at this point. And they say, okay, you were baptized. But before you pray, do you take half an eggshell and pour water on your left hand? And then do you take another half an eggshell and pour that water on your right hand, rub it together three times, and then repeat the process? And you'd say, no. Why do I need to? And they're like, well, in order to be clean before God so that he'll hear your prayers. And everyone in here would probably say, I don't think I need to do that, right? So you're probably not as confused about these cleansing rituals as they were because they were still thinking that those are things they had to do. In order for God to hear you, you have to be fully clean before God. You have to do these ritual washing practices to be heard. So if you guys understand, hey, baptism is what we do and you don't have to do all these other things, hey, you're actually pretty good. These, this is how deep some of the struggles that these people were going through was. They were still holding on to these old systems and these old ritual washings. This fourth one, though, is kind of hard, the laying on of hands. Even a lot of the scholars and commentators that I've read are kind of confused about what this could mean. It could mean various different things. It might mean just talking about prayer and the laying on of hands involved in prayer and praying for one another. Or what some would say, because it's in this conversation about the priesthood, 
is that it has to do with authority and the passing on of authority. Um, that it was the disciples' practice when they were to install a pastor, a leader, an elder, a deacon, that they were to install authority on someone, they would lay their hands on them, signifying that their authority was being passed on to this person. This was pretty important for the first century Jews because they had these really strict requirements of who could be a leader, who could be a priest. We'll get into that next week with Melchizedek. But like the first obvious one is that in order to be a priest in the Jewish faith, you must be a man between the ages of 30 and 50. No fewer, no more. And so if the disciples had installed a church leader who was 52 or who wasn't yet 30, like I am, then the early Jewish Christians would have had a cow because they were still stuck on the milk. They wouldn't have been able to handle that. And so what he's saying is that, well, authority is not passed on by all these other things, but it's the laying on of hands now, is what most say. But that one is kind of confusing. Hey, then there's the resurrection, right? Um, Resurrection that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And that's essential to being a Christian, believing that Jesus rose from the grave. And also that Jesus will raise us one day, that we will have eternal life, right? Christianity 101 probably doesn't need any more explanation. And then there's eternal judgment. He's having to remind them again. Got to understand the basics of eternal judgment, that this is Christianity 101, that there is resurrection for those who believe, there's eternal judgment for those who don't. This is a big deal, this is real, and this must be the foundation in order to move forward. So these are kind of the basics. These are the things that need to be there in place in order for him to move on in this discussion. Um, And he's not, of course, advocating that you need to, like, move on from this stuff and you graduate from the basics. It's like I heard it said that the gospel is the foundation and the house, that you live there and you stay there your entire life, but the foundation has to be laid in order for you to continue to build up and to be built up. And what he's saying here is that if you don't have these things down, then it's going to lead to all kinds of problems, that you won't be able to handle some of the more complicated things, and you'll actually twist a lot of the complicated things. And so he's really charging them here that it's important to grow here. It's important to grow into maturity. You can't stay a baby forever. Um, Bless you. And he's saying you can't just be like carefree and think, oh, why do I need to grow up? Why do I need to do this? Um, And here's actually why, he says. The author throws down some hard truth in verse 4. Here's why it's so important to be growing in maturity, to be listening to the gospel. Here's what he says in verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed, and in the end it will be burned. So there's not really an easy way to swallow these verses, is there? This is pretty difficult, but I know you all get it, so we'll just move on. So what we just read there um, has been called by some as one of the most debated about passages in all of the New Testament. It's, it's, It's hard to read, honestly, and it's really confusing, and it's kind of this shock and this fear-inducing statement here. And in reading um, what some people think about it, um, it is kind of tempting to try to kind of explain it away, and some people um, do think that this was just maybe a 
hypothetical situation, it's not quite possible. I don't really give in to the hypothetical argument because he's speaking to these people, giving these warnings to them for what he's addressing. And you don't give warnings about hypothetical situations or if it wasn't possible. He's addressing the things that he's worried about them for. And then some would say, well, you know, this can't be speaking. Um, he couldn't have been speaking this to the original audience. He must be talking about those outside of it. But over and over in the book of Hebrews, he's speaking to this church. This is a message to the church, to those that he is saying, you're believers, you are Christians, hang on to Christ, don't go back to this old system. And he uses five different statements to describe what they had experienced here, right? Basically not leaving any room for us to say like, oh, he must have been talking about someone else outside of the church or someone who was just hanging out but wasn't really saved. He uses five different very intense statements to basically describe all that they had experienced, basically describe all that you could build your faith on. And so he doesn't leave a lot of room for the argument that this person wasn't a believer, I don't think especially when we look at this idea that they had tasted the goodness of the word. Tasted the goodness. Now, the New Testament, um, the authors will use a lot of, you know, different, like, metaphorical speak, like, okay, you're tasting the word, and we know that we're supposed to consume the Bible, but we don't actually eat it. And so we're able to kind of determine what exactly you mean by this language by looking at how the author uses that same word elsewhere. Well, this author uses that same word for taste, in chapter 2, verse 9, to say that Jesus tasted death. Jesus fully entered into death. Jesus didn't just try death, spit it out. He didn't just dabble in it. Jesus fully died. And so this, this gives us a pretty uncomfortable reading. This isn't an easy thing to read here, with this section here. But I think it's important for us to remember one of the main messages of the whole book of Hebrews is that salvation is through faith in God. That you can't turn to anything else. You can't turn to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to the law, to the temple, to the priests. You have to turn to Jesus and hang on to Jesus. That's it. Believe in Jesus, you're good. Don't believe in Jesus, you're not good. That he's calling them and charging them, remain in your faith. That salvation is not just about Hey, believe once, and then you can stop believing, and you can not care. And you can move on and be a Baal worshiper and deny that Jesus did anything. He's reminding them that faith is about believing in Jesus. And I know this is, like, really controversial, and this is, was a big topic that we talked about in Hot Topics for a long time. But we all recognize that you're supposed to believe in Jesus, and you're not supposed to not believe in Jesus, right? It's kind of... Simple is essentially kind of what he is saying here. He's saying that to not believe in Jesus would be a bad thing. But to believe in Jesus is good, and you're in good, good standing here. Paul kind of helps us out. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes a lot in the New Testament about keeping the faith, running the race, about persevering in the faith. And he says this in Colossians chapter 1. Um, he says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, um, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation 
under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so he's reminding them that if you are reconciled and if you believe, continue in belief. And Paul expects the Holy Spirit to be helping in belief, and the Holy Spirit is going to be carrying you on. But that doesn't give license to stop believing, right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit will bring you to the end of the journey, but it doesn't just give you license to stop believing, that there's still this requirement of belief. And so I don't think what this little section here is teaching is that if a believer drifts away and stops believing, they can never believe again, that God wouldn't take back a repentant sinner. Because we know that whenever you believe in the first place, you were a sinner, and God, you know, has accepted us while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile to him, and God wants sinners to repent and believe. And John 3.16 doesn't say that, you know, whoever believes in me may have everlasting life, um, except the ones who once believed and then stopped believing, right? So whoever believes in me may have everlasting life, right? And so I think this, this impossibility that he's referring to here, it talks about the importance of faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, right? That the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus. That's it. You can't look for anything else. You can't look to these dead works, to these cleansing rituals, to anything else that you want to turn to. If you, and he's speaking to the Hebrews audience, if you here are believers, continue to be a believer. Don't turn to any of those other things. There is no other option. You cannot turn to anything else. And that's what he's saying. The unbeliever must believe in Jesus if they currently don't believe, and the believer must continue to believe in Jesus if they believe. That's the instruction here. And I think we all know people who at various stages of the journey um, who have believed at times and wandered away and then came back, or then they wandered away and they said, hey, I'm out here, you know, doing my atheist thing now. And we've seen that. And some of us might have that story in our own lives where we have had those seasons of wandering away. And the prodigal son is a parable Jesus told based on true events. Like These are things that happen. This is what people tend to do, right? That all too often, people believe the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we go seeking after that. And we wander away. I mean, the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden is the story of not listening to God's voice, listening to the voice of the serpent instead. And we see it all through Scripture, this, this pattern. And this, this happens. Um, but the reality is, you know, whether we know exactly where someone's at in this point or not, the author is just telling us salvation is through faith alone, nothing else. There's no other option. You can't look at anything else. It's impossible if you would see Jesus and what he's done for you and to say that that's not good enough. Guess what? There is nothing else that will be good enough. If that's not enough for you, there's nothing else. That a relationship with God is for those who believe in him, and that's it. That's the option. So this, it's a, uh, it's a tricky pas passage. It's a bit of a punch in the gut. It's pretty hard to understand here, but he's just reminding that, hey, if you're going to drift away, if you're going to stop trying to understand, if you're going to stop trying to listen, or if you're going to want to release God, or if you want to go hang on to those other things, there's nothing else. There is no other option aside from Jesus. 
That's, that's the charge here um, that he's calling them to. Um, lean into maturity. Maturity, hang on to Jesus. Immaturity, being stuck on milk, stuck on all of these other things. This is the warning he's saying. Perpetual immaturity in faith is a problem because it can lead to these outcomes. It can lead to this thing. And so he's reminding them, don't do this. Um, it can lead to this gut-wrenching implication um, that he said in verse 6, where he said that to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And so what happens when the person stops holding on to the message of the gospel, holds on to these other things, is just like what we see in the Palm Sunday account, where at one point people were screaming and shouting, Hosanna, the king has come. And then very soon after, in public disgrace, he was being crucified, right? Many, as Jesus was hanging from the cross, um, just declared that he was a dead Jewish peasant, and that was all there was to it. And he's saying, don't join that crowd there. Um, the word there, um, when it says that they had kind of rejected or rebelled or, or fallen away, um, can literally be translated as revolt or rage, right? And in this whole discussion about priests, we remember how the priests were when Jesus was around. They revolted and raged against him. And the very people who had like the best front row seat to the Messiah, who were able to see him fulfilling all these prophecies or who were able to see him performing these miracles, the very people who had every advantage to believe in him, you could list those five things that should be evidence of belief for them. Wasn't enough for them. And they crucified him, left him up for public disgrace. And that's what he's saying here, that, that don't join that crowd, that crowd that leaves him up for public disgrace, but instead believe. Believe in him. Believe in him. Now, it kind of makes you wonder, okay, like, well, this whole discussion, like, a lot of it does definitely include, like, okay, well, maybe there is this point of no return, maybe there's not, or maybe it is just a hypothetical. Whatever it might be, it still kind of confuses us and makes us think, well, like, why has the author brought this up then? Um, like, if we can't determine, like, where someone's at in the process, or if they are past the point of no return, or if there isn't a past point of no return, or if they have gone too far, or whatever, it kind of makes us wonder, like, why even bring this up? And what we remember is that the author is really, he's worried about them, like, becoming dull in their attention, not trying to understand. He's trying to, to shake them up, to get their attention, to get them to take the gospel seriously here, to listen. And he uses fear appropriately a lot in the book of Hebrews, right? Remember the drifting analogy, and he's saying there is no escape if this happens. And here he's using this, this intense language again um, to kind of induce fear and to remind us of how serious it is to catch our attention, to say that this, if you take it seriously, should be a little frightening, should cause us to kind of wake up. It's like being called a baby. Okay, this might be a very serious challenge. Maybe I get offended and upset. Maybe I take this seriously. But either way, you can't just go like, meh, doesn't mean anything. We'll just move on. He's trying to catch our attention here and to point out something that is critically important, critically important. And it is a little fear-inducing, and it can kind of make us worry. And I think the natural tendency um, when reading something like this 
is then to hold up a mirror and to think, well, where am I at? Is my faith mature? Am I a baby stuck on milk? Or am I moving towards Christ? But I honestly think that if that's our reaction and response, to turn and to look at ourselves, that could actually be a sign of immaturity. But I think the mature Christian actually then hears this message, and instead of turning on ourselves and wondering, oh my goodness, are we going to lose this one day, or oh my goodness, are we going to go in this direction? I think the mature Christian focuses not on ourselves, but actually on him, and that's where he gets into it in verse 9. In verse 9, he goes on, that even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he gives the encouragement here. He's saying, even though we speak like this, dear friends, right? And even though his methods seem a little unorthodox and he started this section off with like calling everyone babies and then this gut punch about this idea of impossible to bring to repentance, here, right, he's giving the counter of love. And we're remembering that this, this is from a preacher who knows these people. He knows them, cares about them, loves them. And he's telling them, hey, don't worry about reading yourself into that warning you're not too far gone you are listening you do believe so that's good but he says there are concerns there are concerns that need to be addressed um he says you know you guys have followed god in radical ways um you helped his people and you continue to help them um but your seriousness has kind of begun to slip he's saying here um which is why he says in verse 12 here hey i want you to stay serious don't don't become lazy um, essentially, they had started their faith off hardcore, and they were ready to go. They were following after Jesus hard. And then, you know, it's like they started working out six days a week on New Year's. Here it is, the end of February. Haven't worked out all week, you know. It's like they started off strong, and now they've put on, like, the freshman 15 of faith, so to speak. Right? And he's saying, hey, wake up. It's time to get zealous again. It's time to keep growing. Don't just get stuck on these things that were hard at the beginning. But again, it's not like this rally cry to look at ourselves and think, well, what am I doing? Uh, am I doing this well enough? But instead, he says, okay, the focus, the focus, what being serious means is so that what you hope for may be fully realized. I want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And so what he's saying is that if they've been drifting towards immaturity or if they've been stuck in immaturity, to get to maturity, to get to this place of mature Christian faith, of growth, of moving towards Christ, is actually from holding to hope. It's from realizing the hope that we have in Jesus. It's actually not from focusing on ourselves, but focusing on the person of Christ, right? Focusing on him. Now, if you're like me, uh, you might think that, you know, when I think of a mature believer, when I think of a mature Christian, I think of um, character traits like kindness and generosity and wisdom or like being really good at Bible trivia, 
being able to answer all those questions. Like, who is Ahithophel and why does he matter? Boom, I can answer that. Like, that's what I think of when I think of a mature Christian. Um, but actually, this is kind of giving us a better picture. Actually, a mature Christian simply one who hangs on to hope and hangs on to Jesus. Um, and Romans chapter 5 gives us an even better picture of what a mature follower of Jesus is. Where Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Um, he says a bunch of things, but then he says, as he goes in, he says, not only so, but also we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Do you see the logic there? And do you see kind of the progression that it's actually not like just character development and these character traits? That's the pinnacle, that's the peak of Christian maturity and a mature faith. It's actually hope. Because you see, most of the world will take character development as the ultimate goal, or a developed character is the ultimate goal of character development, right? That a mature person is a mature person, and that a developed character is a character who is developed, right? Like Evan being the best Evan that Evan can be. But really, what we're learning here is that the peak of Christian maturity, development, is actually hope. That it's not actually the development of ourself and the best picture of ourself, but it's a picture of Christ in us. It's actually a fully formed picture of Christ in us. It's actually our heart and our mind and our person focused on Jesus. That's the peak of maturity, right? Fully formed and developed in us. And so this, this is kind of the peak. This is what it means to be a mature believer. That actually character and those attributes that I always want to add to myself, those actually aren't, those aren't the end game. Those aren't the end goal. Those things will lead to the hope, but actually the peak, the pinnacle of Christian maturity is hope in Christ. It's this focus on the person of Jesus. Not the focus on myself, how am I doing, what is my diet, but the focus on Jesus. Letting Jesus have the final say, the final word. Trusting what God says. Trusting that what he said will take place. Trusting that if he said um, you can repent from dead works and you don't have to do these things, that that is enough. It's entering that rest that we talked about a few chapters later where they were thinking, no, it's not enough. I'm going to have to fight for myself. And saying, no, God does all the fighting for you. You simply enter the rest and hold to the hope. Trust his word and trust in him. And then he goes in at the end of chapter 6 to tell them why they can hold to hope, why they can just trust in him. In verse 13, he says this, that when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying that I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Okay, so this is why faith in God makes so much sense. This is why we can flee to him as a safe place. This is why all we need to do is hang on to him and the hope of his promises and faith in him. Why we can believe that belief is enough, that he has done it all. 
is because of who he is. Person of Christ. He's not giving them any encouragement about like, oh, because yourself, you can do this. He's saying, because this is who God is. God cannot lie. God will keep to his promise. You've heard this message. Hold to it and trust in him. And then he says, now here's that hope in verse 19. So we finish up the chapter here. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, right? Underline that great memory verse, great thing to hold on to there. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then again, we're going to get into that next week. And he's trying to get to this topic. We're going to talk about Melchizedek and the work that Jesus has done here. But you need to believe this foundation of hope that is in Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus and the hope that he has provided. Right? And he says, you know, Jesus has opened up a future for all of us. Jesus has opened up the curtain and the presence of God to us. So simply hang on to that. And I love that image of Jesus as the anchor for our souls, right? It's firm and secure, um, but if you've used an anchor on a boat, you know that when you drop anchor, it doesn't mean that your position from shore doesn't change anymore. You're not just stuck there on a pier. That when you drop anchor, at times you will still kind of flow with the current, flow with the tide. Sometimes it might look like you're even getting further away from shore. Sometimes closer to it. And this is the image here. That even though at times it's going to feel this way, sometimes you might feel much closer, much further, feel very mature, like the hope is easy to grasp. Sometimes you don't. He's saying you don't actually lose your position entirely here. Trust the anchor is holding there. And though the tide is kind of causing you to drift and float, trust that that anchor, which is Christ, focus on him, he is staying still. And so if we make it about ourselves and look at ourselves, if we look at the boat, if we really lean into this analogy, the boat attached to an anchor is just moving all over the place. It's just like really rolling and rocking, depending on the tide, depending on the winds. But that anchor is firm right there. That anchor is not moving. And having our focus on the anchor, on the person of Christ, is what he's calling us to here. That is maturity. That is mature faith. Is deriving our sense of security and steadiness in life and in faith from him and what he has done and what he is doing in and through us now. To focus on the person of Christ. And this is what he says here. Just hang on to that anchor. To press on to maturity, to not stop trying to understand this, to, to not be lazy, as he said there, but to hang on to this hope. He says, you know, you guys, you're not beyond repentance. He says, you guys are not so fallen away. You have this anchor that you are connected to. And he says, you guys have the best seat in the house, just kind of like these, this situation that he described. And so today, your choice is you can believe. Okay, if the option is believe in God, good. Don't believe in God, bad. Guess what? You are sitting right here, and you have that option. It's not too late for you. You still care. You're still able to hear this. It's not too late for you. And he's saying, here's the option. Believe in God. Fix your eyes on him. Learn what he said. 
take this seriously. And you can be satisfied, and you can trust in that. And that's what he is reminding them of here. Jesus is the anchor for your soul. That this is the way to maturity, to hold on to him, and to trust that he is staying there. And what he's describing as mature, he mentioned in the very beginning that, okay, well, you guys should be teachers by now, but I'm still having to reteach you. Well, because we know that, okay, a mature believer is not simply focused on ourselves, but it's focused on Christ. Well, Christ, what is his instruction, right? His instruction is to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel and to, to love one another as he has loved us. He, he gave the disciples the, the new commandment three different times in the last 24 hours of his time with them. He was reminding them over and over again, this is my instruction to you. Love one another as I, as lo- as, as I have loved you. And that's why the author here was saying, you should be teaching others. You should be helping others at this point. He's not saying, okay, now everyone needs to go to seminary and get a PhD right now. Um, you all need to be in this position to teach. But he's saying, hey, the ABCs, the basics, the gospel, you have this, now you can share this. You don't have to keep worrying about if you have this or if you need to do this or that. You have this gospel. Now you can remove the focus from yourself. Focus on the person of Christ. He's holding steady. And teach others. Share others. And this is what growing in maturity means. This is what hang on to the hope of Jesus means. That now we exist to know Christ and to obey his word. Love him and to love others as he has instructed. And it's not by fixing our eyes on ourselves, but it's by fixing our eyes on him and the things that he has done. And when that happens, the fruit comes. When that happens, his love is displayed through us, his spirit empowers and leads us. So it's simply this focusing our eyes on him. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get back into worship here. Well, Father God, um, we just thank you for Jesus as the anchor of our soul. We just thank you for this firm and secure hope that we have. Um, at times, God, we just grasp at so many other things. Um, at times, God, um, we're just so fearful about all these things that we want to do. Um, and, and the feeling that the cross just seems too good to be true, that there's got to be more, that we have to be doing these other things. And so, God, would you just help us to rest in your finished work? Would your spirit just empower us to see um, that our anchor holds firm, that Christ's work on the cross is done, and he has declared it is finished, that we don't need to take up any other work, that we can trust in you. And God, in the process, would you just grow us um, to be mature believers, focused on the person of Christ and on the words he has called us to. God, it's truly our desire to be your disciples, to preach your gospel to this world. So would you just empower us to do that? Would you empower us to do that today? To grow in maturity, to look more like you. And Jesus, as you continue to develop us, would you just develop a picture of yourself in us? Would we understand um, the goal is not simply to develop our character, but it's to to develop your character in us, um, your hope, people who hang on to you and your word. And we trust you in that. We trust that this promise that you have made to us you will bring it to fulfillment. And so Jesus, as we have considered um, these difficult passages, would you just continue to speak to us, continue to reveal what it is that you have said. If your spirit helps us to remember your words, 
and teaches us within you. And so I just ask that um, every one of us today, that you would be speaking and working in each and every one of us. So Jesus, now we turn to you in worship. We turn to you and we worship you as the anchor for our soul, the one who has taken us from death to life. Um, and we just praise you. And so Jesus, we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
church uh, reminder we're gonna have a wrap training immediately after church here so stick around for that and get signed up to help to care for some of these families that could really use it and as you go would you go with the words of romans chapter 15 where it says that i myself am convinced my brothers and sisters that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another yet i have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again and again that because of the grace god has given me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the hope, or may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So grace and peace come around. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful week.